Well, good morning. Good morning again to those of you who I saw in Sunday school. Good morning to you who I haven't seen yet, and now I see your face. What a joy it is for me to be worshiping with you today. Um, this is the first opportunity that I've had to, to preach in the great state of Louisiana. So um, I'm excited about that. Thank you, Lewis, again for inviting me to come. Um, I appreciate the invite. I, I love you all. I love you in the Lord. And I, my spirit rejoices at what the Lord is doing in and through you um, in this area of the country, in Baton Rouge, to make disciples of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I've seen you, and now it's incumbent upon me um, now to pray for you, um, to pray for you continually, uh, to pray for this body. And I'm encouraged to be here this morning. Um, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. Uh, if you would turn there, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. And um, we're primarily going to be looking uh, toward the end of that hymn, but, um, uh, but I'm going to read all of this, um, verses 15 to 20. And so as you're now comfortable sitting down, as you've turned to this text, I'm going to ask you to stand up one more time, okay? Um, get all your stretching in now, and then you can, you can sit back down. Um, but I'm going to read here. I'm reading from the New American Standard, but um, Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 15, going through verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him... All things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Father, we ask that you would speak to us now through your word. We ask that you would give us the ears to hear. We ask that you would give us the grace to obey your word. God, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a breviary or brief summary of sin, Christian theologian Cornelius Plantinga attempts to lay out the traditional description of sin by examining contemporary culture and society. It's actually easy to do if you look at contemporary culture and society, but Plantinga argues that sin distorts the human character and corrupts our capacity for doing good and it's both the cause of misery and the result of misery. There is a Christian understanding of how things are supposed to be as God designed them, in which Plantinga describes with the Old Testament concept of shalom, peace. Sin has brought a, a complex web of corruption, perversion, and disintegration. To state it in my words, sin is so deeply ingressed and entrenched in every human heart that our entire existence in this fallen state is affected in a negative way. Every interpersonal interaction, every social and political structure, every circumstance that we encounter is affected by sin. The sin of others and our own sin. But it's not just humanity, it's the whole cosmos. It's the entire created order that's been affected. The curse of the fall has brought futility that extends to all the creation. 
We live in a broken and dysfunctional world. Amen? We live in a broken and dysfunctional world. And this brokenness, this dysfunction slaps us in the face each and every day, does it not? In a variety of ways. Planica's final comment in the book, he says, without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. Without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. It's important for us to always have an awareness a recognition, a full acknowledgement of the depth and extent of sin in our world, upon our existence in, in this world. I'm, I'm 43 years old. I know, I don't look 43. I, I look young. But I'm 43 years old. Lewis, how old are you, brother? Okay, way younger than that. Lewis is 35. I'm 43 years old, and I feel the effects of age. Now, I'm not simply talking about physical effects. That certainly is true. We have formed a church men's basketball league at our church, and I foolishly decided to be a part of this. It's a rec league, and I quote rec because um, there's guys in there um, that are you know, 25 years old and very competitive. Recreation for me means exercise, you know, but... Um, I fully realize that guys in their mid-20s, um, there's a huge difference from them and me. Anyway, there's physical effects as I get older, but as I get older, um, my, any emotional attachment that I have to this world and to this existence wanes more and more. You know what I mean? As I get older, it seems that I become more and more disenchanted with this world. Um, the, the effect of sin, and I see that in the world, and it seems like it, it comes with a greater realization the older that I get. As, as I was finishing this introduction up just a few days ago, as I was writing these very words about my disenchantment with the world, I got, I got a call from a friend at the church and um, he, writes, he writes for Baptist Press, and he was writing a story about um, this, this instance last week that happened in a town very near ours in Georgia, in Rome, um, about uh, there was a sting, and it involved pornography, and involved in this sting of six arrests was this youth leader um, in the church. Just as I'm writing this, you know, and I'm, I'm reminded that the brokenness and dysfunction of our world is all around us, but it's not just all around us. It's, it's, it affects us, right? And I actually think that this disenchantment with this life that I feel, maybe you feel it too, is not entirely unhealthy as long as it's coupled and countered with the hope that God will heal the brokenness and He will correct the dysfunction. Back to Plantinga's comment. Without full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally uninteresting. So let's have full disclosure on sin, body of Christ. Let's lay it out on the table. Let's allow it to cause us to fall just a little more out of love with our current existence in this world. Because that full disclosure allows us to see more clearly the gospel of grace that has been poured out through Jesus Christ, God's Son. That full disclosure helps us to know that the gospel of grace is ever so pertinent or relevant it's utterly necessary and is fascinating rather than being uninteresting. The main thing I want us, uh, us to see in our time today from this text that we're looking at is that the gospel of grace is an answer to the brokenness and dysfunction of this world. And I want us to see, hopefully we see from God's word a little bit better, a little more clear how the gospel of grace is an answer. The gospel of grace 
is a gospel of hope. A sure hope. A certain hope. That God is going to make things right. That God is going to see to it that things are set right and made to be the way that they are supposed to be. Paul writes this brief letter to the church at Colossae as he sits in prison. I would like to think that Paul possessed, by, at this point in his life, he possessed some disenchantment with this life. He had been through a lot through this time, and he's sitting in a prison for what he believes. Most biblical scholars don't believe that he had been to Colossae by this time. But he had gotten word, he had received a report from Epaphras that the church was confronted by a twofold danger. The first part of this danger was that there was an infiltration of unorthodox or heretical teaching into the church, particularly surrounding, about, uh, surrounding the nature of Christ, who he is and what he's done. And the second part of this danger, what I believe is the result of wrong teaching, always a result of wrong teaching is wrong living, was a relapse into pagan ways of thinking and acting. You see this if you turn probably one page over to chapter 3, where he says, Therefore, after saying these things, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. He goes on to say, you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 5, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Verse 8, you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Don't lie to one another. Why? Because you put on the new self. You've laid aside the old self. You've put on the new self. But there's this wrong teaching that's resulting in wrong living. Okay, that's the, the overarching um, point here of what's going on. That's the context. And Paul's purpose in the book, in the letter, was to provide a Christian antidote to doctrinal and practical error. Pro Paul wrote to the church at Colossae simply for this reason, to help them to remember Christ and all that He has done for them and all that He has accomplished for them. Earlier this week, I just happened to look. I called Lewis right after this, but I happened to look to see if a message had been preached recently on the book of Colossians here at the church. And I, I came to find out that um, your pastor preached Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 on December the 26th. And he's like, yeah, I didn't say anything. I just laughed when you sent that in. Um, but I didn't say anything to you when you, when you said you were preaching on that. Um, so I'm just assuming um, one of two things. Look, you either didn't listen um, <laughs> you had a, a post-Christmas um, uh, hangover, not in the alcohol sense, but you just weren't quite here on the day after Christmas, or um, this church needs to hear this message again, you know. But in, in all seriousness, um, I'm going to say some brief words that are going to overlap and affirm what he said. And I encourage you, if you missed that message on the 26th of December by your pastor, go back and listen to that message on the supremacy of Christ. But I'm going to say a few brief words that are going to overlap and affirm what he said. But I want to lead us to focus on a particular element of these verses and attempt to show how I believe this relates to the hope that we have as Christians, not simply for the completion of our own individual salvation, but for the redemption, for the renewal, for the regeneration of the cosmos, of all created things. The completion of redemption in the plan of God. So hopefully, it'll become clear um, how this text relates to what those of you who were in the Sunday school hour, how it relates to what I talked about there. In this letter, Paul uses some of the loftiest language in the New Testament about Jesus. 
Much of this language is found in this hymn that we just read in verses 15 to 20. One writer states that in these verses, Paul gives 12 ways in which Christ is superior to things, to everything else. In verse 15, he says he's the image of the invisible God. He goes on to say he's the firstborn of all creation. Verse 16, he says he's the one by whom all things were created. Verse 17, he says he's the one who is before all things. Verse 17, the latter part says he's the one who held and holds all things together. So he sustains all things. Verse 18, he says he's the head of the body which is the church, he is the beginning, and he is the firstborn from the dead. The end of verse 18, he is the one who has preeminence. Verse 19, he's the one in whom God was pleased for all the fullness of God to dwell. And then verse 20, he is the one through whom God has chosen to reconcile all things. He's the one who has made peace through the blood of his cross. To be sure, the majority of this hymn has to do with what Christ has already accomplished. His finished work, the reality of what was accomplished by his first coming, right? And what even he is doing now in sustaining all things and holding them uh, together. But it also points to the future, and to his second coming, to his return. So for the rest of the time today, the rest of the time that I have with you, I want to focus in on that final verse, verse 20 of this wonderful hymn. We'll get there in just a moment. But it's in verse 20 that we see the supremacy of Christ that I believe has yet to be manifested, or at least has yet to be manifested fully. It's in that language that we find that it was the Father's good pleasure through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. I want to examine briefly Paul's words up to this point in the letter, how he has prepared his readers for what he states right here in regard to the reconciliation of all things. Paul opens the letter you see here in chapter 1 with the the typical uh, greeting and address. He addresses his readers. And then he moves into this extended word of thanksgiving. And that takes us all the way up to chapter 2. This is all a thanksgiving that he's giving. Verses 3 through 7 are one sentence. One sentence in the original text in the Greek. And it's a wonderful Trinitarian prayer um, as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are referenced there. Paul tells the believers at Colossae that he always prays for them. And he reminds them of their unity and their growth in the gospel and how it's been bearing fruit in them since the days that they first heard of it. And he specifically references in verse 4 look at that he references their faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints so in verse 4 he references their faith that he's heard of and the love which they have for all the saints and in verse 5 he gives the ground or the cause of that faith and love. He says, it is because, verse 5, because of the hope, it's on account of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So he ties both their faith and the manifestation of their faith in love to the hope of the gospel. Isn't that interesting? I believe that what we believe about the future and what God says about the future informs our hope. And not only does it inform our hope, what that does is that manifests itself in the way in which we live. Give me someone who has the certain hope, the sure hope, 
that God is going to do what he's promised to do in his word, and I will show you that person is living out a faithful, obedient life to God because that hope informs their life. And that's why I believe that eschatology, the study of future things, matters. It matters because it informs our hope. It affects our life every day. The content of our hope matters, again, because our Christian faith and our actions are dependent upon that hope. He goes on in verses 9 to 14 to offer a prayer on behalf of the Colossian believers. He says in verse 9, look at it, that he prays that they may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That they would be filled with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Filled with the knowledge of God's will. And he gives the basis of the prayer in verses 10 to 12. So that... I'm praying this, that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in life and light. So he says, I'm praying for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will so that you will walk in a manner. You know how you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? You know how you please Him in all respects? You know how you bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God? You know how you're strengthened with power, all power, for the attaining of steadfastness and patience, and you're giving thanks, a life of thanks? Be filled with the knowledge of God. Be filled with the knowledge of His will. Be filled with what He has revealed in His Word. That's what Paul is praying here. Can you imagine if you had someone praying for you in this way continually? I'm, I'm confident that you do. I'm confident that your, your pastors here pray for this continually, that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will so that you would, it would produce a manner of life that is pleasing to and worthy of the Lord. Obviously, part of this knowledge is tied to the work that Christ has already done, right? It's already accomplished. In fact, he ends the little prayer in verses 13 to 14. For he, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. But this knowledge in addition to the work that Christ has already accomplished, includes the knowledge of what God is going to do in the future. What He's planning to do in and through Christ. You say, what, what God is planning to do in Christ, has not the work been accomplished? When Christ was on the cross, did He not, did he not say in His final words, to die? That Greek word for it is finished. Did he not say this? It's accomplished, right? The work of Christ is finished. I mean, we just read in verses 13 to 14 what Jesus has already done. We teach there's nothing that we can do in order to be saved because the, the finished work of Christ is done. Our part is simply to confess our sins, to repent, and to place our faith and trust in His atoning sacrifice. All of this is true. Yet it's also the case that Christ has work yet to do. Not in regard to accomplishing salvation, but in regard to the completion of that salvation. We read in verse 12 that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. There's an inheritance that we have that is certain... We've been qualified to receive it, and yet it's not completely realized by us yet. We read in verse 18, 
that the necessary implication of his death and resurrection is that he will come to have place in everything, first place in everything. So as a result of his death, burial, and resurrection, is Christ currently preeminent in all things? Yes. The answer is yes, without qualification. 1 Peter 3.22 says, He's at the right hand of God, having gone to heaven after angels and, and authorities and powers had been subjected to Him. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20-22 to says, The strength of God's might was brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and all power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. But there's a tension here. And in that it appears in our created existence that he's not preeminent. I mean, our existence and our experience doesn't bear out that preeminence in every way. It does not mean that he's not preeminent in all things already, but it does mean that there is coming a day when his preeminence will be manifest in a way that we can't even imagine. And that day is when he comes to this earth again. The seeming connection between um, what he will do for us individually and in the future and the subjecting of all things. Paul writes in Philippians 3.21, our citizenship is in heaven. Is that present? Yes. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are aliens here. Our citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.21, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our, the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Did you catch that? Our citizenship is in heaven, but we eagerly await the return of the Lord Jesus Christ because there's work to be done on me and on you that he will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. In the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 26, Paul writes, As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, who was already raised 2,000 or so years ago. After that, those who are Christ at His coming, we're talking about second coming, and then comes the end when He hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when, to God, the God and Father when He has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For He must reign until... He has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Certainly seems like there's work that Christ is going to do. We look forward to that work. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. This language um, of the summing up of all things in Christ Jesus. It says, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. We're not there yet. We're not at the fullness of the times yet. That is the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. We have it. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed. There's a certainty. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given 
as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This compound term used in Ephesians 1, summing up of all things in Christ. The summing up is only used twice in the New Testament. The other occurrence Paul uses in Romans chapter 13, verse 9. There he states that all the commands are summed up in the command of loving your neighbor as yourself. The principal root of the term is head. So the idea is most likely the bringing of all things under one head, that is Christ. It's like the subjection in 1 Corinthians 15. The point is that all things are included. Back to verse 18 in our text in Colossians chapter 1. There seems to be a forward-looking intent in the purpose statement at the end of the verse. Contrast in Paul's language. Look back at your copy of God's Word here. Contrast the language to what he said already. Verse uh, 15. He says, He is the image. Verse 17. He is before. Verse 18. He is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. And then we get the purpose statement. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. There are forward-looking effects of his resurrection. In order, in order that he might become foremost in all, the NASB says, things, but it could be translated in all spheres or in all realms. The point is, there'll be nothing, there'll be nothing that will compete with his rule. There'll be no dominion outside of his rule. Every last bit of creation, meaning everything that is outside of God, outside the being of God, everything that was created, which is everything that exists, everything will manifest His foremostness. I created a word, Lewis. Foremostness. Sometimes you have to do that if there's not a word in existence that gets the point across, that does the point justness. He is going to... He's going to manifest His foremostness in a way that we can never imagine. I believe that Christ is going to return to this earth literally, visibly, personally to consummate the kingdom. Even though believers have been transferred to the kingdom, verse 13, we've been transferred to the kingdom. Even though We've entered the realm of salvation under which God rules. We're citizens of the kingdom. There's a kingdom that is coming to the earth that coincides with the return of the king. And this is why we are to pray as Jesus instructs in the model prayer that the kingdom would come on earth and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this knowledge of God's will, which Paul prays that the Colossians might have, includes the content of verse uh, verse 5, that hope laid up in heaven for you. It includes the inheritance of the saints in light, verse 12. Something, again, that though believers have already been qualified for, we haven't fully received. And it includes the sure and certain faith that the complete manifestation in all creation that Christ being first place in everything, verse 18, is yet still future. And it includes what Paul says in verse 20 regarding all things being reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 again. Finally, we're to verse 20. I told you it'd take us a little while to get there, but you got to build into it, right? Work up to it. It says, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, to reconcile all things To reconcile all things to himself. What does this mean? 
How is this done? What are the implications of what Paul's writing here? Most importantly, what does it have to do with the brokenness and dysfunction of our world, our sin-infected and corrupted and distorted world? Again, Paul states, it was, the, it was God's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself. Look at verse 19. It was the Father's good pleasure, one, for all the fullness to dwell in him, and it was the Father's good pleasure through him to reconcile all things to himself. As we contemplate this verse, verse 20, I'm over halfway done, so don't get worried, Lewis. Um, we had to work up to that. Um, but as we, as we think about verse 20 here, I want to address the various elements in this verse, verse 20, in turn. But I want to do so from the more basic to the more complex. So let's start with the, the nature of all things. What's he mean, all things? The context seems clear that all things, get ready, means all things. I told you we're starting at the more basic and we're moving to the more complex. But going back to verse 16 and 17, we've got the exact same language that appeared there right here in verse 20. Look at verses 16 and 17. There's nothing in the created order that was not created by him, Christ, through him, and for him. There's nothing in the created order that is not created by him, through him, and for him. This is the point of Paul's words back there, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Verse 16, again, all things have been created through him and for him. So he's repetitive here. He starts off, verse 16, for by him all things were created. And then there's this aside, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things, get it in your head, all things have been created through him and for him. So that's the point. In the first two phrases, in the heavens and on the earth, and visible and invisible, have been classified as mirrorisms. Okay, a mirrorism is a rhetorical device or a figure of speech in which a combination of two contrasting parts of the whole refer to the whole. Okay, I'll give you an example and it'll help you understand. So if I come to you and I said, I have searched high and low for my phone and I can't find it. Okay, well, you would know what that means. You wouldn't, I don't think, come back to me and say, well, why don't... You search high and you search low. Why don't you search at eye level? What's it mean when I say I search high and low? It's two contrasting points. The point is that the contrasting point, the use of me saying I searched high and low, means that I searched everywhere, right? And so he, he uses this mirrorism. So the point is, all things, I've created all things, and he uses a mirrorism at the end of verse 20. I threw him to reconcile all things to himself. And then he has this comment we'll talk about in a moment. Through him, I say at the end of the verse, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The point of all things, again, is all things. If we're to boil down all that is, all that exists, it could be placed into one of two categories. You have the creator, the created, okay? God is the creator. He's the only eternal being. He's all, the only thing that is eternal. And he spoke, and he spoke all things into existence. So you have the creator and the created. The created here are part of all things. And all things were created in him, through him, for him, and all things have been created in that manner. And now he's telling us that through him, all things are going to be reconciled. Okay, so all things. So in verse 20, when he says all things, he means the same thing that he means in those earlier verses. The point is further legitimated by that mirrorism at the end, which I've already mentioned, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
All right, the second thing, element of the verse is reconcile. What does this mean? What is this concept of reconciliation, the Greek term apokatelasso, um, from katatelasso is used to refer to, um, at least the root word is used to refer to the establishment of proper, friendly, interpersonal relations after those have been disrupted or broken. The addition of the prefix apo intensifies the, the force of the verb and strengthens the, the completeness, the totality of the reconciliation. The word is used in regard to nations when, it, it is, when a peace has been established, where it was hostile, it was a hostile situation. So reconciliation here is the taking on of a hostile situation and bringing peace, transforming it into a peaceful situation. It's the making things right that are wrong. And this reconciliation in verse 20, I believe, is amazing for a few reasons. Number one, it's amazing because of its extent. We've said already that the reconciliation extends to all things, right? All things is all things. But it's not simply all things when we talk about the extent. The reconciliation extends to the depths of the wrongness of all things, Okay? It's a reconciliation of all things, but when we think about that, we think about it's a, a reconciliation of the wrongness of all things. It's a making things that are wrong in so many ways right in every way. Do you get that? It's a making of things that are wrong in so many ways right in every way. Now here, I've got to bring up, okay, something that might be in your mind. What about unbelievers? What about Satan and his demons, the angelic beings who are rebellious against God? Are they reconciled? And this is where our preconceived notion of the reconciliation needs to be nuanced or adjusted a bit. Because we're not talking about universalism here. We're not talking about that every human individual is going to be reconciled in a positive sense to God because we affirm that there is a judgment coming and those who haven't been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ will experience um, a, a, a total separation from God and more than that, torment, physical, spiritual, emotional torment forever and ever. May we be uh, zealous for the gospel because he's not willing that any should perish, neither should we be. But we're not talking about universalism and that all humanity is going to be saved. I, here I think it's helpful um, to think about the, the example of what you do when you balance or you reconcile your checkbook. Okay? If, if any of you still do that. Um, you reconcile your checking account. And what's your purpose in doing that? The purpose is to make sure that all debits and all credits are accounted for, okay? It's an accounting for the things. It's making sure that everything is in the right place and in the right, um, and, and, and allocated in the right way. And in this way, in this understanding, the reconciliation of all things actually can be seen to include unbelievers and Satan himself. So that when the judgment day happens, when God ultimately judges sin and wickedness and death, which is thrown to be, said to be thrown into the lake of fire, and Satan and his dominions and all unbelievers, when that time happens, that all is made right, everything is reconciled, all the debits and credits are in the right place, and it is the way it's supposed to be. And that's the reconciliation. It's amazing in that fact that it's, it's a reconciliation and this extent of it is, again, to all things, to the wrongness of all things. The second reason why it's amazing, amazing is its initiation. The reconciliation is not, obviously is not something we could have accomplished, is it? It required God's initiative. 
Reconciliation could have never been initiated by us because of our unrighteousness. But because of His grace, because of His mercy, because of His love, through the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of the righteous Christ, God accomplished the reconciliation that we could never initiate. It was the Father's good pleasure that through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. Praise God that He is powerful enough to reconcile all things to Himself. And praise God that He chose in His grace and mercy to do it in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Praise Him that He did it. Not because of anything that we have done, right? While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us, and that's how he demonstrated his love for us. And the third reason why it's amazing is it's through the blood of his cross. He says, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is interesting. The cross here is tied to cosmic reconciliation. Atonement, which is universal in a sense. The conversation, I'm sure your pastors brought this up in in various venues and from, from this very pulpit, the conversation about whether the atonement is limited versus unlimited between Calvinists and non Calvinists on a soteriological discussion is focused upon individual salvation. The whole discussion may have the consequence of limiting salvation, pun intended, of limiting salvation only to humans. Instead, we should see what Scripture says about God's redemption of the entire cosmos. Reference passages that I talked about in Sunday school, Romans 8, where we see all creation groaning, in travail, waiting eagerly for the redemption of the sons. I talked about 2 Peter 3 in which all creation is involved in what I would argue is a purifying destruction. It's a destruction, yes, but it is a regenerative and purifying destruction. Acts 3 on the restoration of all things and the number of passages that talk about the new heavens and new earth, Isaiah 65 and 66 particularly. The point is that this cosmic redemption or reconciliation occurs because of the righteous atonement of Christ. And that widens the scope of how we understand the cross. There was something cosmic going on on that hill. There was something cosmic going on when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ spread His arms for you and for me, but not just for you and for me, so that we could come and have a relationship with the Lord through His Son, Jesus Christ, through faith and repentance and confession of sins. Not just for that, but to reconcile all of the brokenness, all of the dysfunction that our sin has brought into the world. Praise the Lord for this redemption, this cosmic redemption. And again here, We have this tension of the already, not yet. While the the universe has already been restored to its God-ordained destiny because Christ accomplished this fully on the cross and, and His Father, He put a rubber stamp on it and approved the sacrifice and it's... It's done. We've been restored to our destiny. The benefits of the reconciliation, the experience of the redemption, the brokenness, the dysfunction is not yet gone from us because we're waiting. We're waiting for the reconciliation. And it's all tied again to we're waiting. We're looking up to the heavens daily, figuratively, but maybe Maybe literally every day we look up to the heavens and say, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. Fix this mess. The clause in verse 20 is governed by that causal conjunction for at the beginning of verse 19. 
It goes back to verse 18. Look, he says, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. So this verse 19 is tied back to verse 18. It continues the explanation of why the risen Christ is, uh, will come to be preeminent in all things. What's tied together in this text is the reality of Christ's preeminence in all things and all things through Him being reconciled to God. In other words, His supremacy in all things, in all spheres, in all realms is the result of the reconciliation of all things that occurs because of what He has done in His death, burial, and resurrection. And in these verses we see an intimate relationship, a relation between the origin of the present creation and the reconciliation and redemption of the present creation. The creation of all things and the new creation. And the two, creation and recreation, if you will, are accomplished through this preeminent and supreme Christ. So if Christ is going to reconcile all things, how does this affect my hope in this world? If Christ is going to reconcile all things, how does this affect the way I live my life in this world? I can't answer all of that right now, but as we think about this, um, despite the fact that all creation has been negatively affected by sin, brokenness and dysfunction throughout, The work of Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection again ensures the transformation of creation in such a way that it's going to reflect the glory and the goodness of God. Sin's affected every aspect of our our existence. We acknowledge that fully. And we affirm that God is rectifying the situation by reconciling all things to Himself. Biblical theologian Howard Snyder writes the following, the continuity from Old Testament to New Testament here is crucial. He's commenting on this text in Colossians. We stress this because Christian theology often over-spiritualizes God's saving plan. The New Testament pictures not a divine rescue from the earth, but rather the reconciliation of earth and heaven, of all things, whether on earth or in heaven, things both visible and invisible. God is making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. God's plan in both the Old and New Testament is to bring shalom to the whole creation. And in this sense, Christians are still being saved. Because ultimately, no one experiences shalom in its fullness until the whole creation enjoys shalom. In Christ, the church, those who have believed in the gospel, experiences reconciliation to God as an accomplished fact. We await the cosmic reconciliation of all things. And this is fleshed out in the verses to follow. Verses 21 to 23. Look at this. He applies this general statement of reconciliation of all things to his hearers, his readers here at Colossae. Although you who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you're here today, God, and you've believed in Christ and you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, you've been reconciled to God as he says here, you who were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, you have been reconciled 
through the death of, of Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. But what he's calling us here in verse 20 to do is to think about this reconciliation of all things. Look, as we close here, I just want to give you an encouragement. Again, I don't know how all the ways in which this affects our hope, but I know, with, I know in faith, I trust that this affects the way that we live. If we truly believe that God is going to correct, He's going to reconcile, He's going to make right all things, all the dysfunction, all the brokenness in our world, then that is going to cause us to walk in a way, walk in a manner worthy of His calling. It's going to cause us to look up to the heavens and eagerly await His coming. And just that fact, just waiting for Him to come back is going to influence us. It's going to manifest, that hope is going to manifest itself in right action in our lives. So we're going to have a moment in just, uh, in just a moment to reflect upon these words that God has given us. But let me pray for us as we close. Father, we thank You for Your Word today. We thank You that Your Word is clear. We thank You that is, Your Word is sure. You thank you, we thank You that there are no errors, there are no mistakes in Your Word that it is perfect and good. And God, we thank You. Not only that You created all things, all things came into existence by Christ and through Him and for Him, but that it was Your good pleasure to reconcile all things to Yourself, God. I pray, I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would continue to teach us this text. Continue to... Um, just mark this in our minds, this hope that You've set out that is tied to the return of Your Son Jesus so that we might live lives of obedience, live lives that are, are infected with this hope, God. We love You, God. We thank You for Your grace and Your mercy, and it's by the Spirit, and in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. If you're here and you have questions about what this reconciliation looks like, maybe you know in your life that your life has not been reconciled to God. You still live out the passions of your flesh. As we sing, friend, myself and Pastor Travis will be down front who would delight in sharing with you how you can experience God's reconciliation. But friend, you don't have to come forward and speak with one of us. There are plenty of gospel-believing people around you that would delight in sharing with you how your life can be reconciled 
drums. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you. We would delight in shepherding your heart. I'm praying for you this morning that the truth of this text might indeed be evident in your life. That indeed you might live your life daily with a desire for, return, for Christ's return. If we can pray for you, it will be our delight. Or thirdly, maybe God has impressed upon your heart that this is the congregation, this is the church that you need to be connected with to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this same family. God, as we respond to you now, we ask that our responses might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.